Please be seated, everyone. <laughs> I'm getting slower. Um, I like this new lectern. Um, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Harvard Divinity School's 202nd Convocation. Um, as Dean of the Divinity School, I'm delighted to welcome all of you here today, colleagues on the Faculty of Divinity, our colleagues from African and African-American studies in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Emeriti, senior administrators from Harvard University and HDS, colleagues on the staff, guests, students, incoming and returning, and our friends from near and far. We're very glad to have you all with us. Thanks for being part of this community celebration. So today we celebrate the opening of a new academic year following the events of our bicentennial celebration of this past year. And we especially welcome our new colleague on the faculty, Dr. Todney Thomas, our new Bloomberg visiting professor, E.J. Dion, and our first distinguished writer in residence, Terry Tempest Williams. Please give them a warm HDS welcome. I have already met most of our incoming students during these past days of orientation and must say what a delight it is to start the semester with so much fresh energy, talent, aspiration, and eagerness to learn and to serve. Today's keynote address by our new and distinguished colleague, Dr. Cornell West, entitled Spiritual Blackout, Imperial Meltdown, Prophetic Fightback, promises to be an engaging and mobilizing start into our new year here at HDS. Just guessing from the title. <laughs> Please note that Dr. West will also lead us in a moment of silence following his remarks. Allow me, please, to say a word of thanks to everyone who helped um, put together today's festivities. My gratitude goes in particular to our musicians, especially our brand new director of music, Christopher Hussfeld. Christopher, welcome. He organized our musical program with immense care and thought and even composed some of the pieces we will be hearing as meditations today. I'd like to thank uh, Jeffrey Shamu on the trumpet. Jeffrey, thank you. And, and, and to all our student readers, um, Angel, Salva, Michael, thanks for agreeing to do this. And last but not least, to the staff members in the Office for Academic Affairs and the Dean's Office, who organized this year's convocation and put everything together. Thank you, everyone, for all you have done. So a heartfelt thank you and round of applause for all of you. So without further ado, um, let's now begin our service of convocation with a reading. Angel, thank you very much. <clears throat> This reading will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes 
in his glory, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand at his, and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, that you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you, a stranger, and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer to them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life.
reading from the epilogue to the Cornell West Reader on Anton Chekhov. Despair and hope are inseparable. One can never understand what hope is really about until one wrestles with despair. The same is true with faith. There has to be some serious doubt, otherwise faith becomes merely a dogmatic formula, an orthodoxy, a, a way of evading the complexity of life rather than, engaging, than a way of engaging honestly with life. Therefore, for me as a Christian and humanist, I am reminded of Harry, Harold Goddard's splendid book on Shakespeare, which says that the greatest poetry tends to portray the human condition as a citadel of nobility, threatened by an immense barbarianism, or a flickering candle in an immense night. He doesn't say that in a self-righteous way. He just means that the possibility of sustaining hope is always difficult. If you are fundamentally committed to human dignity, that is true from Sophocles, Sophocles to Aeschylus to Chekhov, Toni Morrison, and John Coltrane, you know that you are cutting radically against the historical grain. Any fundamental commitment to decency, dignity, and democracy means that you are cutting even more fundamentally against the grain. You have to be aware of this. You have to be willing to look at the worst to push for the best. This is the old Thomas Hardy insight stated in his Tenebrae. I always resonated deeply with that. It means wrestling with despair and doubt but never allowing them to have the last word.
a reading from the epilogue to the Cornell West Reader on John Coltrane. Coltrane, in so many ways, is like the Hebrew Bible, which centers on chesed, loving kindness at its best, and the New Testament, which deals with a love that is so rich and deep, but it doesn't really deal with an incongruity that sit, sits at the center of human predicament, which is the raw stuff of the comic. Thus, even the greatness of Coltrane would have to be examined in terms of what's missing. For me, the sense of the comic is crucial, and there's no doubt that Charles Mingus brings that. Actually, Chekhov is the great poet of the comic of incongruity, but it's very high comedy. He talks about failure and inadequacy of intelligence in the most sophisticated and intelligent way. To accent heroic action that is always self-critical and, and that therefore accents intellectual humility is tragic at its best. I understand tragic to refer to the freedom that humans have to explore the possibility of even greater freedom but against constraints usually constraints of which they are unaware. The comic is a way of acknowledging those limitations and the incongruity between those high aspirations and where one actually ends up. With Coltrane and Chekhov, the tragic and the comic are in fascinating tension and hence they actually need one another. With Mingus, within the black musical tradition, you already have a wrestling with the most sophisticated forms of the comic. And of course, I want to stress that the comic is in no way reducible to the humorous or even the satirical. It cuts much deeper, though it often embraces that. How many of you have heard or sung the hymn, Oh Happy Day? Let me see some hands here. We've got some happy day people here. <laughs> oh Happy Day by Edwin Hawkins and Lynette Hawkins Stevens has been playing in my mind recently. One reason is because all of you new students have arrived. 
to revivify the Harvard Divinity School just after its 200th anniversary. Our faculty and staff open our minds and hearts to you. Another good reason to feel the spirit of Oh Happy Day today is because our speaker is our dear brother Cornell West, who has returned to the Harvard Divinity School after an absence of more than 15 years. Cornell West, he's the best. <laughs> I'm grateful for this day if you allow me a personal reflection. I've been waiting since 1991 to be securely on a faculty where Cornell West is inscribed. That year, 1991, I was happily at the University of Colorado when Princeton University's Department of Religion, where Cornell worked, reached out to me. Now by 1991, Cornell West had already cut an intellectual rug with the publication of the American Evasion of Philosophy a genealogy of pragmatism, and prophetic fragments, illuminations of the crisis in American religion and culture. 30 years later, both of these works are still widely used in graduate seminars in this country and have been considered to be, quote, the most important reconstruction of American pragmatism in recent times. Now, Cornell encouraged me then to leave Boulder in the Rockies the town where I raised my children and my Denver Broncos, <laughs> saying, come on over here, brother, and together we can do some black-brown pragmatism together. So I left the Rockies and went to Princeton, and within a year, Cornell left Princeton for Harvard. <laughs> John Gager, the author of The Origins of Anti-Semitism, said one day during our time on the faculty, with Cornell West, it moves me to remember this. Even though we in religion only get Cornell half time because he's running the Afro-American program at Princeton, every intellectual interaction we have with him is a rare gift. I lamented his departure of this gift and felt at once that a once in a lifetime opportunity for that black-brown dialogue had been lost. He enlarged himself with a war against parents. What we can do with America's, for America's beleaguered moms and dads. Nine years passed and he wrote Race Matters and Keeping Faith, Philosophy and Religion in America. He gave us the Cornell West Reader, which in the words of another critic, initiated major shifts in the public discussion of the terms of race and class in the United States. Cornell was compared favorably with Jurgen Habermas and Judith Butler for his philosophical excellence and his impact beyond the academy into public thinking. In 2000, Harvard came calling to me and Cornell who was here said, come on brother, let's put the doubt behind us and join me up here and we'll do that black brown community building. He called and I followed him to Harvard and within a year, because of bad leadership up the way, he went back to Princeton. <laughs> In despair, I turned to the cosmos and said, is it me? Am I the cause? Every time I join up with Cornell, he splits. 
But now, I have the honor of publicly welcoming Cornell West back to HDS and bringing him forth to you today. Oh, happy day. <laughs> But one line in the song, Oh Happy Day, has special relevance for what we're about to hear in these dark times. Dark times akin perhaps to what the Buddhists call Mapo, a period of political and cosmic degeneration. The line in the song that people forget is, he taught me to watch, fight, and pray. Cornel West learned from Jesus and other prophets to be a watcher a deep reader, an interpreter of American travails and potentials for caregiving and human dignity. Cornell is like James Baldwin in the film, I Am Not Your Negro, who laments, quote, quoting Baldwin, I'm terrified that the moral apathy, the death of the heart, which is happening in my country. In response to this, Cornell West wrote, Democracy Matters winning the fight against imperialism, distinguishing, and in this book, he distinguished radical democracy from liberalism. He also wrote Brother West, living and loving out loud. He was living so out loud that he'd been portrayed on Saturday Night Live <laughs> by Kenan Thompson, appeared as Chancellor West in two of the Matrix movies. He's made spoken word albums and most recently became heard on that wonderful Bootsy Collins the funk capital of the world. Now why has he been out loud? Because in his life, a public philosopher addresses topics of public importance in publicly accessible and intellectually critical ways that strive to bring freedom to the political realm. He learned to watch, fight, and pray out loud. In fact, the fight in him, this loving fight in Cornell, reminds me of this short passage from William James who wrote, if this life be not a real fight in which something is eternally gained for the universe by success, it is no better than a game of private theatricals from which one may withdraw at will, but it feels like a real fight, as if there was something really wild in the universe which we with all our idealities and faithfulnesses are needed to redeem. So teach us, Cornell, how to fight more effectively, how to organize in the spirit of what Mexicans call convivencia, living together to create new life, not new death. And let's have that black-brown dialogue here at HDS. Given the biblical-sized travails in Houston, on the Mexican border, in America's prison system, I want to pay a minute of attention to one other word in the title of the song, Oh Happy Day. That O sound is not just a litter, letter or a prefix. It comes out of black sufferings and black strivings. It's a numinous sound. That O, it's a primal sound. Pointing to excessive suffering that overwhelms the world. That complex O is what Anton Chekhov, one of Cornell's inspirations, wrote about when he said, write about this young man we could say, young woman, squeezing drop by drop the slave out of himself, 
and waking one fine morning, feeling that real human blood, not a slave's, is flowing in his veins. Now in closing, I confess, another song also came to me as a challenge in the lead up to today. A song by the recent Nobel Prize winner in literature, Bob Dylan. The song is called Blind Willie McTell. It's about the great Piedmont blues and ragtime singer. Each stanza ends with a refrain, and I know no one can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. The song tells us that we, we live in a land, quote, that is condemned all the way from New Orleans to Jerusalem, that we live in a land where suffering overwhelms the worlds of the tribes who are moaning, where the Mexicans are dying in the deserts, where the ghosts of slavery ships are remade into American prisons. That's why nobody can sing the blues like blind Willie Mattel. And at the end of the song, we arrive at a challenge for today's gathering, for today's speaker. The song says, God is in his heaven, and we all want what's his, but power and greed and corruptible seed seems to be all that there is. Seems to be all that there is. Seems, maybe, in this school, in this year, at this hour, of growing poverty, rising rivers, and rising arpaios, and the <laughs> eclipse of human dignities, we gather to hear Brother Cornell West revoke the notion that corruptible seed is our destiny as a species. We gather to hear him provoke us with his jazz impulses so we can remember the prophetic traditions, but find new political variations to help us all build freedom for more and more, we gather to hear him and feel him invoke those spirits and bodies and ancestors and even freedom fighters yet to come so we can one day all sing together, oh happy day, which we will watch and we will fight and we will pray for. The title of his talk is Spiritual Blackout, Imperial Meltdown, Prophetic Fightback, Please welcome Cornell West. Oh, my dear brother David Carrasco, give it up again for this brother. you can tell he loves me and I love him right back. <laughs> Reminds me of the last song written by one of the great artistic geniuses of the 20th century. His name was George Gershwin. He wrote a song called Our Love is Here to Stay. <laughs> oh yes. What a blessing for me to be here this afternoon. What an honor and what a privilege. I want to begin by saluting the captain of this ship. He's my very dear 
brother, he's a beloved Dean David in, in Hempton. Let's give it up for our brother. And also for his, his beloved wife, Elizabeth Ann, known to us as the beloved Lou Ann. Let's give it up. David Carrasco, distinguished scholar, freedom fighter, bridge builder of not just brown and black, but of all colors. I don't want to overlook his scholarly contribution, even given the fact that you can tell he has an exemplary spirit. Professor Carrasco. I want to acknowledge my dear sister, Dr. Kyron, she has been magnificent. She has been marvelous in bringing this together. I don't know where she is, but just give it up for her wherever she is. And the same goes for Brother Matthew. The same goes for Brother Matthew. Let us never overlook our musicians. They are not ornaments or decorative entities. They are constitutive of who we are as persons and community. I'm talking about that, those authors and players, composers, and enactors of the meditation, trumpet and piano, one, two, and three, Brother Christopher and Brother Jeffrey. <laughs> I salute the distinguished faculty at Harvard Divinity School. What a great tradition. What a grand, grand legacy. It was actually 26 years ago that I gave this talk at the same moment, same convocation. And I can see in the eyes of my dear brother, the late great Richard Niebuhr. Just to invoke his name, it brings tears to my eyes. Many moments in his classes, his gentle spirit, his subtle mind. And I recall the words he said after my convocation. He said, we do have a future, not because of what I said, but because of our work together. Let us salute the distinguished faculty here at Harvard Divinity School. Indeed. And of course, I don't have, a, I don't have words. Language fails me when it comes to describing the depth of the quality of the students here. Yes, indeed, especially the brand new students. <laughs> Welcome to Harvard Divinity School, indeed. The second year. Welcome again to Harvard <laughs> Divinity School. Third year, fourth year. Welcome again to Harvard Divinity School, no, indeed. But I want to begin, actually, on a note of piety that I come from a tradition, a great tradition of a grand people. And the best of this tradition has everything to do with not just courage and vision and sacrifice and service to the least of these, but it has to do with piety. You understand piety is not blind faith to a dogma. It's not uncritical adherence to a doctrine. But it's what George Sanahan and John Dewey define piety as the sources of good in our lives, in our move from womb to tomb. Our acknowledged dependence on those who came before. 
I am who I am because somebody loved me. Somebody cared for me. Somebody attended to me, and I'll never, ever forget it. It's a magnificent moment to be back at Harvard, Harvard Divinity School, Afro-American Studies, but the greatest honor I will ever receive is to be the second son of the late Clifton West and present Irene B. West. The grandest acknowledgement I could ever make is to be able to, to come out of that love nest on the chocolate side of Sacramento, California that was inseparable from Shiloh Baptist Church of Reverend Willie P. Cook, who was a pastor. He was not a CEO. We had choirs. We didn't have praise teams. The market model had not taken over. Our prison ministry was stronger than our building fund. Ooh, that, that hurts these days, doesn't it? But there's also an intellectual piety. It was 47 years ago when I first walked up those steps and took my Hebrew class from Professor Dick Clifford from Western Jesuit School of Theology. And then moved on to Paul Hansen and Jerry. G. Ernest Wright, who I wrote my undergraduate thesis in Near Eastern Languages and Literature, I shall never forget their love, their caring and their nurturing. I'll never forget the John Rawls's and Hillary Putnam's and Roderick Firth's and Stanley Cavell's and Martha Nussbaum's and Aline Foley in Greek. They mean the world to me and I begin with piety because Antonio Gramsci says, those who are serious about being all season love warriors, not just sunshine soldiers, in this moment of spiritual blackout and imperial meltdown, you must begin with a critical historical inventory. Who are you really? How do you situate yourself in relation to traditions? And no one of us have one identity or one tradition. We're all hybrids all the way down. But you have to situate yourself in the best of those traditions in order to constitute wind at your back so that you're able to sustain yourself in the face of the variety of catastrophes coming our way. The ecological catastrophe, the Anthropocene is real. The extinctions are real. The nuclear catastrophe is pending with Russia and the United States and other countries with nuclear capacity. The North Koreas, the Indias, the Pakistans, the Israels and other countries. We know the moral catastrophe is real. What I'm calling the relative eclipse of integrity, honesty, and decency, not just in this empire, but around the world. And what do I mean by moral catastrophe? We're not talking about politics, we're not talking about ideology, we're talking about the kinds of human beings who are being shaped by the weakened institutions in our world. I want to acknowledge my dear sister Suzanne who always has that magnificent smile when she's in the office. She's a grand example of a counter move against spiritual blackout. Give it up for Sister Suzanne. <laughs> spiritual blackout is the 
normalizing of mendacity. To make lies appear as if they're part of the normal order of things. Such as, we believe in justice, but not one Wall Street executive who engages in massive criminality of insider trading, market manipulation, fraudulent activity, and predatory lending, not one goes to jail. It is the naturalizing of criminality so that crimes against humanity become part of the natural order of things. One out of two black children under six years old living in utter poverty in, in the richest nation in the history of the world. That's just not wrong. That's just not unjust. That's a certain kind of crime against humanity. Where's our public discussion about it? Where are the voices? Where's the moral outrage? Where's the righteous indignation? No, we just fit in. It's just business as usual. Drone strikes have been killing innocent children for the last 10 years. And yes, under our dear brother Barack Obama that so many fell in love with and became blinded when it came to his complicity in war crimes. We normalize criminality. So it's not just a matter of the new occupant of the White House. It's too easy to fetishize Donald Trump. But he is as American as apple pie. He just represents the worst of America. But don't isolate him. Don't act as if he dropped out of the sky. No, no, he comes out of very deep organic traditions in the country. Transphobia losing sight of our precious trans brothers and sisters. Losing sight of our bisexual folk. Lesbians and gays, black people, indigenous people, Latinos, working people across the board. Moral catastrophe. But then I want to accent that deeper spiritual dimension. I noticed that one of the great prophetic figures of our time just walked in. I'm talking about Professor Susanna Heschel, who, of course, is the daughter of the one and only Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Give it up for our dear sister Heschel. <laughs> Distinguished graduate, too. Love Love Spiritual blackout not only normalizes mendacity and naturalizes criminality, but it also encourages callousness it elevates machismo identity, and it rewards indifference. And when William James, the greatest of all public intellectuals, Brother David Lambert understands that, given his magnificent book on William James, and I look forward to teaching the class with you this semester. We're going to have a good time, brother. <laughs> William James used to say, indifference is the one trait that makes the very angels weep. By Heschel says indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. But when you encourage indifference, where machismo identity is defined in terms of being manly and mature rather than cowardly and insecure, then that's a sign of a spiritual blackout. And so when we look at Donald Trump, we ought not to engage in a sophomoric name-calling and 
finger pointing that we get too often from the corporate media, the very corporate media that in one sense helped produce that Frankenstein, given their obsession with money and revenue and profits. I think he was the head of the CEO of NBC. What did he say? We understand he's bad for America, but he's good for us. Oh, so much for public interest. So much for common good. Oh, we see what's really running things, this market-driven, predatory capitalism that's obsessed with short-term gain, that is obsessed with superficial success. What about spiritual issues in which greatness has to do with he or she who is serving the least of these rather than just the smartest in the room? And that neoliberal soul craft that has become hegemonic across ideologies across politics, across color, across sexual orientation, where the very end and aim is to focus on smartness, dollars, and bombs, rather than wisdom and compassion and service to the least of these. That's a sign of spiritual blackout. So when we look at Brother Donald Trump, we ought to also look inside of ourselves. There's elements inside of us that need to be wrestled with. That's why this grand institution going back to 1816, and I'm reminded of John Ware, who of course generated the controversy, Andover moves out because the Orthodox folk can't take the Unitarians, they're a little bit too loose. <laughs> we love our Unitarian brothers and sisters. But I'm still gut bucket black Baptist. <laughs> so I can be a free thinker and still be tied to the mysterious movements of the spirit that always have a way of humbling you so you don't think as if being the smartest and being the freest thinker is the measure of being great. I come from a people who've been terrorized and traumatized for 400 years. But Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, they decided what? Not to terrorize others, to fight for freedom for everybody. They connected the legacy of Athens with that fundamental stress on paideia, that formation of attention. So you shift from the superficial things to the substantial things rooted in Plato's Republic, that line 518D, the turning of the soul, the transformation of yourself, not just access to gain a job or acquiring a skill in order to be visible, but to be a certain kind of human being who has undergone a paragogy, a metanoia, a conversion, a transformation. And then you're on the road to the cultivation of a self-critical orientation and the maturation of a soul that wants to be, in the language of John Coltrane, a force for good. And it means then you have to shatter the chains of conformity, including the forms of conformity that are shot through professional managerial sites in our capitalist civilization like Harvard University. The aim here is not just to make the next connection. <laughs> Moving up the ladder. Can't wait to be successful. For what? What kind of person are you going to be? What are you going to use your fame for if you have it? 
Part of our problem these days, we got so many market-driven celebrities tied to glitz and spectacle and raw self-promotion. We don't have enough morally-laden exemplars that have gritty, deep convictions and stout-hearted causes that they're willing to live and die for. And young folk, the challenge becomes, do you have enough courage, but not just courage, Great classical tradition of the Western civilization says what? Courage and magnanimity produce fortitude. A Nazi soldier could be courageous, but he's still a gangster. I saw great courage in the eyes of my neo-Nazi brothers and sisters in Charlottesville just a few weeks ago when they stood in front of us and spit and called names and racial epithets. Yes, I saw a lot of courage. I could see blazing in their eyes unbelievable determination, a willingness to live and die. But we need more than just courage. We need spiritual and moral dimensions that are tied to that courage. We need fortitude. We need greatness of character. We need magnanimity. And that fortitude that embraces the courage provides us with the kind of moral and spiritual orientation. We can hold off the obsession with short-term gain and hold off the obsession with raw ambition and self-promotion. But it's part of the civil war raging inside of each and every one of us. And that's what I love about the great legacy of Athens, learning how to die in order to learn how to live, trying to fight off those narrow prejudices, that parochialism and that provincialism, trying to hold back that hedonism and narcissism and narrow individualism. We got our dear brother E.J. Dion here that has written a marvelous book on individualism and community. He understands the difference between the quest for individuality in community and the narrow, rugged, rapacious individualism that leaves us isolated and deracinated and rootless and unable to connect in such an atomized world. Did I get your interpretation right, though, brother? No, 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 I want to make sure. We got the author in the house, so we got to make sure we get the interpretation right here. I believe in hermeneutical humility, you know that. But the prophetic fight back in the face of the decay and decline of the American empire. My hunch is somewhere the American gibbon is beginning to put pen to paper. It's probably a sister of any color. Good chances, lesbian, could be trans to tell the truth about the history of this grand experiment in democracy grounded on the dispossession of land of our precious indigenous brothers and sisters and the violation of their bodies. People talk about, oh, slavery is America's original sin. That's not true. The treatment of our indigenous brothers and sisters was of original sin. Not slavery was second. White supremacy moves quickly. <laughs> but every human being has the same value and significance from the tradition that produced me. And I intend to be faithful unto death of that tradition. You see? 
But when you lie for so long, when you believe you're innocent for so long, there's an intimate connection between innocence and violence. That's why the dominant myth of the American empire is frontier. What is frontier? Moral regeneration through violence, the savages to be tamed, the savages to be subordinated and dominated, and the sophisticated civilized ones to take over their land and say, lo and behold, there's free land. There's no human beings here, only buffaloes and Indians. Chickens come home to roost. Sooner or later, you're going to reap what you sow. You can only go on so long with mendacity and criminality. Have a constitution that's a pro-slavery constitution in practice, but talk about liberty for everybody. Talk about yourself as a beacon of religious liberty, but black folk can't worship God without white supervision and have no right to learn how to read or, or write. What are we talking about here? This is not some interesting tension between principle and practice. <laughs> the crimes against humanity. And sooner or later, chickens come home to roost. And we have to be fortified that in this moment of imperial meltdown, in this moment, 4,855 military units around the world, 587 overseas rest in the United States. Special operation activities going on in 150 nations. Yes, that's an empire. Military overreach for every dollar spent in the White House, dollar spent in Washington, D.C., 53 cents go to the military industrial complex. And we wonder why it is that we have so many decrepit schools, don't have enough money to generate jobs, programs to deal with underemployment and unemployment. Why it is we can't have universal health care, just a basic benchmark of a civilized society. Thank God for Canada. <laughs> We've got right-wing brothers and sisters in Canada, more left-wing than most in the Democratic Party on health care. True. Now, I know Canada has its problems. Why? Because we all have problems, every nation, every person, every individual. But to be able to keep track of that underside, but not in a spirit of self-righteousness. This is a major challenge, especially for those progressive folk who just love to be in the company of the do-gooders. No, oh, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity, too. Samuel Beckett is right. Try again, fail again, fail better. Try again, fail again, fail better. That's true for each and every one of us. That's true for our movements. But we need examples of persons willing to speak the truth. And the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak. And in my tradition, going back to the blues artists of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, and jazz musicians like Sarah Vaughan and Mary Lou Williams and John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Duke Ellington and Count Basie, there's a soulful kenosis that sits at the center of prophetic fight back. And don't confuse prophetic fight back with progressive do-good activity. Because prophetic fight back has to do with the fundamental orientation of your soul, the very core of your being. And the soulful kenosis that you hear in a Sam Cooke or an Aretha Franklin what you might see in the Kendrick Lamar or Erica Badu, which is courageous 
creative, unflinching look at catastrophe. Because the blues is produced by people on intimate terms with catastrophe. That's what Ralph Ellison said, didn't he? The blues is individual story of a personal catastrophe lyrically expressed. Nobody loves me but my mama and she might be jiving too, says B.B. King. He's the king of the blues. And that's the B-side of the thrill is gone. Which can be catastrophic too, but we won't get into that right now. But to look that catastrophe in the face, no denial, no evasion, no myths of innocence, no self-righteousness, and say maybe together. And this is where religion plays a fundamental role. Because let us be honest, most of the history of religion has been religious institutions accommodating themselves to structures of domination and reinforcing envy and resentment and hatred. That as religious people, we have no higher ground in terms of our tradition. The only higher ground we have is earned in terms of what kind of lives that we've lived, what kind of sacrifices we have made, what kind of costs we're willing to bear. Martin Luther King Jr. doesn't speak on behalf of all the black church. No, most of the black church were terrorized and they were scared. They were niggerized, and the niggerized of people is keep a people so intimidated and scared and afraid that they walk around with their backs humped over and laughing when it ain't funny and scratching when it don't itch and wearing a mask and just trying to fit in and be well-adjusted to injustice rather than maladjusted to injustice. Martin Luther King Jr. had to cut against the grain in the black church. Rabbi Heschel had to cut against the grain when it came to Jewish synagogues. Dorothy Day had to cut against the grain when it came to the great Catholic tradition. We can go on and on and on. Bell Hooks Buddhist, she's cutting against the grain in more ways than one. But not in the self-righteous way at their best. But soulful kenosis, which ought to be inextricably tied to paideia, in which after the critical reflection after the analytical understandings of the operations of power and structures of domination and oppression. Yet you say, this is the kind of human being I choose to be before the worms get my body. That's a vocational question, not a professional one. It's a question of calling, not just your career. It's a question of life and death, not just your upward mobility in terms of your status. Those are the kind of questions, religere, going back to the Latin, binding and rebinding religion, what the great William James in his Gifford lectures call the core problem of religion, which is what? The call for help, being an agent, being a subject in the world, but knowing there will be moments of such relative helplessness and impotence that you must call for help. And the great Nathaniel West in Miss Lonely Hearts, which is the literary equivalent and analog of William James's varieties of religious experience in that first chapter, probably the second greatest comic text ever written in American literature after Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Nathaniel West, in that first chapter, says, help, help. That's where we are now in the imperial meltdown, in the escalating neo-fascist era run by Trump tied to big money, big banks, scapegoating the most vulnerable, especially Latino immigrants, but also those of the non-straight orientation, 
peoples of color. Call for help horizontally of each other. That's part of the brown black dialogue. I can't make it without Brother David. He can make it a little longer without me, but sooner or later I come running anyway. <laughs> That's the kind of solidarity, and it's not just ideological. It's not just political. Don't believe the corporate media hype that you have to subsume yourself under some label. You see, when the anti-fascist forces protected us in Charlottesville, they didn't ask for our identity. They said, these folks singing, this little light of mine gonna get crushed, them and the light. And they intervened with courage. And of course, we have some ideological, political differences with them, absolutely. But at that particular moment, they intervene with courage. And that's where I think we will be, which means there'll be widespread disagreement, there'll be strong agreement. Let us mediate our disagreement with respect, critical sharpness, and an acknowledgement of the humanity of each and every one of us. And do we have any guarantee? Absolutely not. If that American given is right, then the decline and fall of the American empire is in motion, and the dominant forces will be hatred, envy, resent resentment, xenophobia, anti-Jewish hatred, anti-Arab hatred, anti-Palestinian hatred. It would be targeted on women, and especially black folk and brown. And if so, we just go down swinging. That's all you can do. Go down swinging. And if we can turn it around, regenerate, reinvigorate, and revitalize the best of American democracy, fight for the rights and liberties, try to create some robust public life, public conversation, public schools, public health care, and so on, then we have a chance. But that's not something that is in our control. What we ought to do now is to decide in the end who we really are. These are the times that test women and men's souls. Thomas Paine was right. Let us now have a moment of silence for our brothers and sisters of all colors in Houston. Let's have a moment of silence for our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa, and Latin America and Central America. Let's have a moment for our brothers and sisters here in Cambridge wrestling with the effects of a variety of different catastrophes as we begin this new year in the middle, in, in the mess, in the funk, but deciding to intellectually, spiritually, morally fight, work, laugh, grin, hug, serve, and sacrifice.
God bless you. Let's have a magnificent year. Have fun. Be unsettled, unearthed, and bounce back strong. My dear brother, Dean Davis. Find your notes. <laughs> I think we need livelier convocation services. <laughs> um, I want to thank David and Cornell, uh, especially Cornell, but uh, thank you both for leading us out into this coming year. It's going to be a tough year. We, we know it's going to be a tough year, and we will figure out who we are, who we really are in this year, as he said. So thank you so much for um, inspiring us right at the start. Um, after the uh, uh, closing music, please do join us for some uh, iced tea and cake, just right out there. And um, especially welcome our new students uh, who are here. And um, uh, again, thank you everyone who took part, especially to our two um, principal speakers. We're very grateful to you.